Welcome to Pediatric Consult. I am your host, Dr. Jill Schaffeld, and I'm here today with our two guests, Dr. Nancy Crimmins and Dr. Amy Shaw from the Division of Endocrinology at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Um, and we will be talking about prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, and more specifically, the diagnostic dilemmas that they can present to the general pediatrician in the office. So let's start and learn a little bit about our guests. Um, we'll talk to Dr. Shaw first just a little bit about yourself, how long you've been practicing and practicing at Cincinnati Children's, how long you, you and Dr. Crimmins have been working together, and even just sharing some special interests. Okay, great. Um, well, it's great to be here. Um, I have um, been doing pediatric endocrine um, since 2007, so we're going on about 15 years. I actually came to Cincinnati Children's to do my fellowship training and then stayed on as faculty. Um, I am director of the type 2 diabetes program at Cincinnati Children's. Um, Dr. Crimmins actually heads up the pre-diabetes program. So we've been working together um, since I started probably my fellowship a uh, long time ago, but more closely probably over the last five years. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Do you have any other special interests besides type 2 diabetes that you want to share? Um, well, I actually spend a lot of uh, my time in clinic seeing patients. Um, I also actually work in the uh, preventive cardiology clinic seeing patients with um, primary and secondary lipid disorders as well as um, pediatric hypertension as well. Um, and then I spend a lot of my time um, actually doing research too, so trying to understand um, complications of diabetes in the pediatric age range, and then specifically how best to manage um, this population of children. Wonderful. I think that's such a great example of how um, integrative Cincinnati Children's is the, working with the cardiology clinic, too, in terms of prevention, right, for um, diabetes and prediabetes. So, so Dr. Kermans, um, same questions to you. How long have you been practicing if you would like to share, and then how long at Cincinnati Children's, and then um, Dr. Shaw mentioned that you guys have been working together since 2007, which is great. Yeah. Um, so I came here for residency in 2000 and stayed for fellowship and on, um, and even early in fellowship really developed an interest in how we prevent type 2 diabetes. So there's this thing like preventive cardiology, there's no preventive endocrinology, but I almost think there, there should be. So we established this pre-diabetes clinic to really catch kids before they're tipping over and try to be aggressive with lifestyle management. Um, and then I run a clinic with the HealthWorks group for kids under six with either early onset or severe weight issues and really to try to capture those kids early and be really aggressive in management because we know where they're going to end up if, yeah. if we don't. And fun fact, I actually interviewed Amy Shaw when she came for fellowship. It was like massive snowstorm and she got oh, no. stuck at the airport to like... <laughs> 2 a.m. So we were on the phone very late at night. So it's really cool that that we had that experience, and I, and then now that we're partners, like sure. that, I, I love well, it. After that, you're probably like, yes, we need I her. Feel like we know, were kind of bonded a little early. <laughs> we were. That's cool. And it's cool that you guys have continued to be able to work so closely together. I always say, um, Dr. Crimmins is the reason I came to Cincinnati Children's. Aww. Nice. How much did you pay? No. <laughs> I'm teasing. So um, just to go ahead and delve in one little fact as I was reviewing Cincinnati Children's, we have our um, community practice support tools that I think both of you were involved in developing our prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. You know, I looked and I saw a stat that was pretty staggering that said 5,700 new diagnoses per year. Um, and is that just curious? Is that fact, um, is that 
age range under 18, kind of what, what population are we looking at there? Yeah, so some of the, um, that data comes from um, the Centers for Disease and um, Prevention, and um, there, there was a large study across the United States, and um, it really is um, referring to um, youth um, under age, uh, it, but in this case under age 21, wow. um, with di diabetes diagnosed before the age of 18, though. Okay. Um, and that's where that statistics come from, and that's pr uh, primarily focused on um, new diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Um, Pre-diabetes might actually even be higher, and it's thought that maybe one in five teens um, might actually have pre-diabetes. Wow. And that's mm -hmm. the latest data. Pretty impressive. Kind of mind-blowing when you think about it that way. 20%, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and, you know, another thought, just um, discussing the incidence, and maybe Dr. Crimmins, you could speak to this, of just diabetes and pre-diabetes, the rise in incidence over the last 20 mm -hmm. years. Yeah, I mean, I even think during COVID, we saw it increases in all diabetes and pre-diabetes um, for reasons we all recognize, just inactivity, um, eating at home, eating a lot of processed food. You know, the obesity epidemic's just really been something that we haven't quite gotten on top of, and a lot of that's a lot of societal reasons, I think, for that that are just hard to address. Um, but I think, too, there's the big numbers, and in individuals, you know, in families that come in. And I think we have a real opportunity to, you know, to make a difference each and every kid and family that, that come. And so it's easy to kind of be overwhelmed by the numbers and feel kind of like hopeless that there's so many things that are contributing to this picture. Um, but I think we're learning new tools all the time in different ways we can help out, so. Absolutely. So what specific risk factors, and it, I think we can speak to pre-diabetes, and that will obviously overlap a little bit into type 2 diabetes, but what specific risk factors do you think, um, as a general pediatrician, we should be most aware of as we're having that conversation with the patient in the office and we're reviewing growth charts and BMIs and dietary intake, um, as well as, you know, maybe just different lifestyle things? Yeah. Um I really encourage people to take a good family history, and I think we're all kind of bad about doing that. Like, we take it when they're initial patients, and then we don't really ask again. But one of the biggest factors is does diabetes run in the family? Because it's definitely has a genetic component to it. And so if you have a parent with diabetes or a grandparent, and a lot of times if they're like, oh, you know, grandma has it, and she was diagnosed at this age, um, I'll ask the parent, have you been to a doctor recently? Because we know a lot of the adults haven't been. They might be, oh, it was like eight years ago or, or something. Such a good point. Yeah. You know, it, you, they may say, I don't have it, but then, like you yeah, said. They, they haven't really, right. you know, been seen. So I, I do think it's really important to ask that question at least once a year. And I, some practices, I'm sure, are good about doing that and have forms or whatever. Fill it on the tablet <laughs> things. But um, I, I think that's a huge risk factor. So, of course, weight is one, but it actually doesn't correlate as well as you would would think. Um, and then we're learning a lot about fatty liver actually as a, as a risk factor. And I, and I don't how, know how familiar pediatricians are with that, that process and screening for that, but those, those two physiologic processes seem to be pretty linked. Um, and so making sure that they're getting screened for with an ALT at least, and if, if that's you know, something that they develop first, we find that's a risk factor to develop diabetes um, in the future. What am I missing? No, the only other thing I was going to add was um, 
a moms that might have had pregnant uh, diabetes during pregnancy. So gestational diabetes is another um, big one to ask about. And then, of course, um, physical exam, you know. Sure. Um, any signs um, that you can see of insulin resistance, specifically acanthosis nigricans on the back of the neck is, uh, is kind of um, the things that we think about the most when we're screening, uh, thinking about who should we screen for diabetes or prediabetes. I think that was great. You know, I, I do feel like once we get through the newborn period, we don't a lot of times think to ask back again about pregnancy history. Yeah. You know, we may be looking at a 10-year-old. Right. Oh, wait, that's significant as well. So, yeah, thanks yeah. for that, that clue on gestational diabetes and mom as well. We did forget one thing. And then also race. So, yes. Um, so minority races have a bigger um, chance of developing diabetes down the line than whites. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Just to kind of piggyback on what you had mentioned, Dr. Crimmins, about um, fatty liver and being, it sounds like maybe even more um, of a predictor than even weight at times. Would you like to just touch very briefly on kind of diagnosis and fatty fatty liver? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So fatty liver is actually really tough because um, ALT is probably your best easy screening marker but it's not perfect i mean really the only way to truly diagnose what's going on is a biopsy but of course we're not going to put all these kits through there so so alt is a good pediatrician screening marker and if that's elevated especially if it remains elevated um i know the liver our liver friends if it's over 100 they want to see those kids right away if it's kind of in that middle group you know over 50 for several times in a row spaced out then then they like to see those kids too um the the lifestyle treatment's the same actually for for pre-diabetes and fatty liver it's all low glycemic index type talk of cutting out sugars and then activity um they they do have some imaging tools that they're using now there's a specific mri that can kind of help determine if there could be scarring or not and they have a little ultrasound what's that thing called fiber scan fiber scan yeah yeah oh, wow. okay that they'll use sometimes in the clinic okay. that that isn't perfect again but can give you a hint because of course we don't again don't want to biopsy sure every child that has an elevated alt well and thank you for entertaining that because i realize that's not specifically your specialty but i thought with that being such a a big risk factor to just delve into it a little bit so i really appreciate that um, the only thing i'll say is i think um, we don't know which comes first and in some patients one appears to come first and in some patients actually you can pick them up at the same time and of course um, type 2 diabetes um, can also lead to fatty liver disease so i think they what we've seen is they go very close hand in hand but which one may come first might depend on the individual patient Sure. So let's go ahead and um, talk a little bit about testing and just kind of general screening labs. I think most general pediatricians feel pretty comfortable with, you know, what are we, what do we consider kind of our obesity labs or our prediabetes type screening labs. But would one of you like to maybe talk a little bit about just as a quick reminder of kind of what labs make sense, maybe even labs that have been ordered in the past that really aren't needed, um, what to focus on. Sure. Um, so the easiest thing to do is just a fasting draw because you're getting your lipids at the, at the same time. Um, so a fasting glucose, which is a criteria for both prediabetes and diabetes, um, and then a uh, hemoglobin A1C measure. 
The one that we used to do more is insulin. And, and over the years, that's really fallen off as a recommended screening tool. And, and the reason is because it actually doesn't correlate great um, with who's going to develop the beta cell failure part, like the, the blood checker part. So you can have insulin that are crazy high, and that kid never has a, you know, a glucose issue. And then there's some finicky things about the assay and puberty that can affect it and things. So, so we don't really recommend insulin anymore. You can get an oral glucose tolerance test. It's just more cumbersome, and especially in a gen peds sure. setting to, to get, but that's really been the gold standard of, of diagnosing these two things. But we've even swayed a little bit far away from oral glucose tolerance testing because hemoglobin A1C or a fasting blood glucose level has been good enough in most situations. Great. And that's what I was going to ask you, if there is ever a situation or a scenario that you can think of where you would say, oh, these labs are a little off, would would it ever make sense really in, in this day and age for a general pediatrician to order an oral glucose tolerance test? The only situations I can think of is if you have a patient that really has really no symptoms of diabetes and the fast, there's some discomfort coordination between the fat, you know, it's a truly fasting blood glucose level and the oral and um, the A1C level, you know, that might give you some more information. But in general, I would say even our division is, is ordering fewer and fewer of these tests and really limiting them to if you have specific questions you're trying to answer. Okay. Yeah. Would you agree? Other, yeah, no, I do agree. I think the only other time I might use one is it is helpful if you have one of those kids that you're like not sure if it's type one or type two and you're kind of catching them on the slide because you do get insulin levels during that test and matching those up um, with the glucose is actually as gold as you think it might be, but it's still helpful to know how insulin deficient sure. they are. And then again, kind of what that glucose pattern looks like as they're developing disease. But again, I can't even I can't even tell you the last time I've done one to be honest, because it's just hard to get the families in and, and do it, and you don't want to delay a diagnosis when you have easier screening tests to use. Sure. Yeah. No, I think that makes perfect sense. So, you know, we have the labs, we order the labs, and then what specific criteria, and we can start with even pre-diabetes, should we be looking for to diagnose or to say, okay, we're in kind of the pre-diabetes phase of things? Yeah. So I'll take that one. So prediabetes is tough because there's multiple criteria. And in kids, um, you know, less so than adults, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to tip over to type 2. So so sometimes you'll see a prediabetes marker and then you'll repeat it. And even though the weight's no different, it's, you know, normalized. So it's not that you shouldn't take it seriously. I'm definitely not saying that. But it's a little trickier than I think type 2 is. Well, and I realize I used the word phase, and I'm like, that's not a good word because not everyone that has prediabetes is going to develop type right. 2 diabetes. So right. I just kind of thought, I didn't really love my choice of words. Well, so thank you for it, Well, it can clarifying. be. It can be. It's just sure. hard to know which ones, you know, are going to kind of persist. So um, certainly if you have more than one thing in the prediabetes range, that's more worrisome, I would say. So so your criteria are fasting blood sugar between 100 and 125. 126 is your diabetes criteria. And then A1C between 5.7 and 6.4. So those are the, the two quickest ones that we do. And then on the oral glucose tolerance testing, the fasting criteria is the same. The two hours would be, or the two hour mark would be between 140 and 199. Okay. And for type two, it's just above that. Yeah, it's Correct. above that. <laughs> that makes exactly. Sense. Yep. So you can use all the same um, labs that you would have obtained. So fasting blood glucose level, hemoglobin A1C, and as we said, rarely the oral glucose tolerance test value. Perfect. 
Are there, and this is kind of a weird question, but any additional kind of just red flags that we should be like, oh, you know, when we see these lab results, oh, not to just say, oh, this is prediabetes or this is type two and, you know, I need help from an endocrinologist, but red flags either in the lab results or maybe even in the exam when we're seeing the patient. Yeah, um, I can answer a couple of those things. So I think um, when the if the patient has symptoms, we get more concerned, right? So they're um, waking up at night, use the bathroom, drinking a lot, peeing a lot. Um, those are things that tell you the blood sugar's running a little bit higher because really to have symptoms of diabetes, um, your blood sugar's probably been high for a little bit longer period of time. I think the um, hardest thing at this age, though, is the overlap with type 1 diabetes. So um, that's a really, I think, an important um thing to bring up um, because I think the age overlap is very similar and you can have patients that have family histories of diabetes and a lot of times they don't know if it's type 1 or type 2 diabetes and so if there's any um, history of autoimmune disease or um, if there's been you know the patient looks a little bit sicker I think you always have to entertain the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes too um, because we definitely have patients with type 1 diabetes that can have BMIs that are in the overweight and obese category. Um, you can also have patients with type 2 diabetes at onset who have had dramatic weight loss, so you might not see that extremely high um, BMI. So I think um, one of the things that I would always um, caution you know, pediatricians about is you can't, um, just by looking at the patient, know um, whether this is type 1 and type 2 diabetes. I think there's things that point you in the direction of one versus the other. But that's the other thing that if you're if there's any concern, that would be a reason, you know, or a red flag to, to give an endocrinologist a call on the phone. Well, and I love that you pointed out the, um, you know, polyuria, polydipsia. We're just traditionally always trained that's type 1, that's type 1. Mm -hmm. so, so just to remember, that can happen yes. in type 2, especially, like you said, if that glucose has been high for that mm -hmm. long, it's going to have that, those similar effects in yep. the body. So mm -hmm. think that's a good thing for us to keep in mind. No, I totally agree. I think we've seen several kids in the clinic who've lost a lot of weight yeah. before they've gotten to us, and and they're doing some of the things you said. So, like, they're celebrating themselves, and it's always, like, a little sad, I think, than when they're – because you show they're the ones that have the highest glucoses and oh, the most progressive disease. Sure. So certainly if you see somebody who's losing weight a lot faster than what you would suspect, even if you'd screen them within a year, I'd probably do it again just to make sure that it's not from hyperglycemia and that's why they're, yeah. they're losing. That's actually a great lead in. My next question was just going to be, if prediabetes is noted um, by the general pediatrician, say on lab work, what do you recommend for follow-up time frame for labs? Um, and I maybe part of that just depends on how many things are abnormal, right? That's I know it's a little bit of a broad question, but just how many, like maybe how many months in between labs, and then at what point is it just once we cross into that true type two diabetes that we should talk about referral to an endocrinologist? Yeah. So. Um, you know, a lot of it just depends on, on how passionate the pediatrician is about these things, like to be fair, because HealthWorks is a great program. That's our tertiary weight program here. And we, we have a whole visit to, to talk about, you know, lifestyle management and change. We have dietitians, we have exercise physiologists. So so I think in the community, the tendency has been, oh, this is what we got. And we send them on to either endocrine or, or HealthWorks. But there's a lot you can do, I think, in the office, even in a short period of time. 
Um, and I always tell the residents, like, I'm not sure handouts ever did anything. I'm not telling you not to give them. But I've never heard a family come and go, oh, my gosh, I had no idea what to do until I got these handouts. And now I totally know. <laughs> so I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to be mean at all because I think we feel like we're doing something good. But um, you know what I'm always teaching the residents who rotate through is, like, if you can even just get some idea of what that family's life is like, um, you might have a better idea of kind of where to start because a lot of her families rely on free meals like through the school sure. so spending a lot of time on healthy breakfast and this is just not kind of where you, you know you no. want to start and it's making sure you're getting a healthy snack after school and, and, and dinner and it just takes some practice I think to do that efficiently sure. but those are things that you can absolutely do in the office especially if you just have something right over the cutoff you know the kids fasting's normal mm-hmm. they're nine they're even sees you know five seven like that's something you can talk about as a launch point and and then in that kid if they're really buying in you might bring them back in three months to really talk again and how's it going and and, and recheck or someone who's really close to that diabetes line or has a lot of barriers that one you might want to refer Checks. i think refer i think even. sooner because you have such a risk of tipping yeah. over and you need to be more aggressive it's interesting that you said you know that about handouts because one of the things I always try to talk to my patients about is especially maybe when we're talking about a nutrition referral you know I always kind of look at the parents and say I know you know what healthy eating means but how do we make that work in your life right because everyone's situation is so different um, and also for the child how do we make that understandable to them um, depending on age, right? That can be so different. So it is interesting to think of it kind well, of from, and I think from their of, point of view because there is just so many different situations. Oh, for sure. And I think you get, like, when they come to the general pediatrician, they may be there for any number of reasons. Like, that's if it's a well-child check where you're really focusing on, you know, on weight and growth. But the older the kids get, like, I mean, you guys would know this better than me, but, like, I think sometimes they're coming in for a completely different reason. You know, they have otitis. They have something else. Sure. And, and being able to capture that that family at that visit and say, hey, you know what? I'd really like to have another visit to talk about this. What are your feelings about it? What have you? What are your thoughts about your child's weight? Um, and really see where they're, where they're at with that. But you guys have so much to cover in a short time <laughs> sure. when you're doing those, those well childs that I really think it needs its own visit. Absolutely. I agree. The only thing I was going to say was, so I think with pre-diabetes, you have the opportunity to potentially intervene and recheck labs in either three to six months, you know, um, kind of time frame. With type 2 diabetes, we really don't have that luxury. It can progress really fast, and they really need to be aware of the diagnosis, um, screened for other uh, comorbidities potentially, and started on treatment. So I think um, depending on where those labs fall, you either have the opportunity to give them a little bit of more time or refer right away. Perfect. Thank yeah. you. And Dr. Crimmins, you had mentioned HealthWorks as well. Um, can you speak a little to actually Dr. Crimmins or Dr. Shaw? Yeah. Who is the perfect patient that would go to HealthWorks versus nope, we're going straight to endocrinology? Right. And it may be a little bit of what you kind of just yeah. touched on, but just to be very clear. I'll let Nancy cover this because she's been working on, <laughs> yeah. on this and, yeah. and making it better for several years. Well, I'm trying. You look like you're getting real comfortable I'm in your chair. Trying. <laughs> no, so so I'm the only endocrine provider that works in HealthWorks too. So I've really tried to bridge this and I think we have some even better things coming down the line that'll bridge the two the two groups um but we just don't have the bandwidth and endocrine to see all these patients um 
So HealthWorks is run by general pediatricians, but they're fantastic. Obesity and their complications, that's what they want to want to do. And and again, you have the dietitian in there, you have an exercise physiologist. So they are very comfortable with screening for prediabetes. They're very comfortable with even early type 2 management and, and how to do that. So um, really the kids that we want to go there are the ones that are the, the lowest risk to tip over. And we can kind of talk about what that, that means. Um, but just know that if you, most of them really should probably go to HealthWorks. Um, and just know that they know what they're doing. They're going to get them over to us. We have direct pipelines going both both ways, you know, between physicians to make sure they're getting the right, right place. But even the cornerstone of type 2 diabetes management, it's lifestyle. So we have these fantastic drugs now that we didn't used to have, but that's still the cornerstone of what you're going to do with these, these kids, and especially in prediabetes. Um, the ones we want in endocrine are the ones... Um, that, that are just a little higher risk. So the A1C is over six, so you're getting, getting close to the line. There's a strong family history, or you're like, man, this kid might be type one. You know, like there's both types in the family. Um, there's some just flags that make you a little squirrely. Like those would go, you know, to endocrine, or if there's NAFLD or there's a minority, you know, the patient's a minority and older, and you just think those are the ones that you're more worried about. And that way, if they do have type two diabetes by the time we get them, because things have progressed, the team's right there. It's the same people who see the prediabetes in the type two patients. And, and so you're already, the patient's already rolling, you know, in the system. Right. What do you think? No, I, I completely agree with you. I think we, we kind of, depending on the patient's needs, sometimes they'll even get a referral and they'll look at it and they'll say, how about maybe this patient should go to you guys and say, same with us even before the patient hits the door. So I think um, we're in communication on the back end. Um, um, but what we usually try to say is refer to one, not both. <laughs> because I think families get overwhelmed and we are very, very similar in what our initial visits are like, um, especially for prediabetes. So I would say um, you really can't go wrong if you pick one or the other. Um, but in general, um, I think one or the other is the best way to go. And then we have the dietitians and the exercise physiologists in our clinic too. And we said it that way because before we had the clinics, if they were referred to endocrine, and I think people thought they were doing well, you know, they'd be in a clinic where there's no dietitian or exercise physiologist there. And so you're seeing a doctor and you may not even be seeing the doctor that does the most, you know, diabetes spectrum work. Um, so we have developed these pre-diabetes clinics for that reason, but I think it confuses people a little bit when they know that that's out there, that maybe then all the pre-diabetes patients should go to us. Sure. And that's definitely not how we think it should be set up. Great. Are there any other specific things that you guys can think of that you would just little pearls to give general pediatricians? I think we've got some great info here, and just for our Cincinnati Children's colleagues, um, can definitely refer back to we talked about our community practice support tool has, you know, some very specifics and great flowcharts to follow. Um, good algorithms in terms of, oh, what was that exact number that I'm remembering, and and kind of where to go. But I just didn't know if there were any other little things to share. I think we've covered a lot, but and that's okay if there's nothing. <laughs> no, I think the only other thing I would say is um, it's really what we don't know, and the biggest question is who might tip over from pre-diabetes to type 2 diabetes. So I definitely think these children need to be followed, um, whether it's with their prim primary pediatrician um, or with, you know, either the HealthWorks team or, or the endocrine team, um, really, because I think there's still a lot to be learned. But as Dr. Kremen said very early on, um, I think we don't know which kids are going to tip over, and a lot of them don't, actually. With um, implementation of 
diet and exercise, we've seen really good results, you know? Um, and some people, their labs completely can flip over to normal. So I guess I would say is, um, you know, we're seeing more prediabetes, we're seeing more type two diabetes, but there's still, I think, a huge role for diet and exercise in both of these conditions. Um, and even patients with type two diabetes that have um, managed to implement really good lifestyle changes and even bring their weight down. Um, at times they can move that A1C into the pre-diabetes range and we've even seen it revert back to in the normal range and come off of medicines. Well, that's great news. Yeah. Great news for families and patients. Yeah. The, the one thing to be aware of is every once in a while we'll have pediatricians have a patient that screens positive for type 2 and even sometimes pretty far down the spectrum like that A1C is pretty high and they put a referral in to endocrine. Um, that can take months we're pretty backed up, unfortunately. So so that's, I just want to add to that if you, you have someone who's definitely in full diabetes, just call, contact us directly through Priority Link or, or however, for other people listening, you get a hold of your friendly endocrinologist because <laughs> we can get those patients in sooner and we even have a day hospital program to bring them in immediately and, and get things going. And we don't want them, you know, floating out there for a couple of months um, and not making it to us if they're already in type two diabetes category. Yes, yeah, so to answer, go back to one of your questions you asked about how soon we should see the pre-diabetes. For type 2 diabetes, we want to get them in within a month um, just Great. to just to kind of share that information. So if there is somebody, um, you know, feel free to give us a call because we will manage to do that. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you both today. Appreciate all the knowledge and, and help, and I think we've covered some great and very pertinent information. Um, and I just wanted to mention as well that CME credit will be available. Um, there should be a link on the actual podcast site um, at the end of this. So for everyone listening, nice little bonus there. Um, but we appreciate everything. And I apologize. We heard some little beeps. There may be a delivery truck outside today or something. But um, thank you, Dr. Shaw. Thank you, Dr. Crimmins. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was great. Oh.